You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. I'm going to read the text and then uh, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's presence waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few... That is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So this is the word of God this morning for the people of God. Uh, would you join me in prayer before, uh, before I preach? Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to be together, to gather, to hear from your word, to sing songs together, to spend time in prayer together, even this morning to honor um, mothers in our midst and, and to be thinking about the way that you've been so kind to give us moms to care for us. And in the same way, Father, we ask that you would come and care for us through the preaching of your word, through the study of your word, that you would nourish our hearts and nourish our souls. Lord, uh, we, we recognize that, that each and every one of us in this room, uh, we definitely are misfits. Uh, we definitely are broken. And uh, we definitely are rebellious. And we definitely need you to come and nurture our hearts as we study and hear from your word. So God, I pray that you would do that today by the power of your spirit. Pray that you would remove any kind of hindrance in this room that would uh, seek to stop us from hearing from you. And I pray that you would do a life-giving, transforming work in us this morning. Trust you to do that work in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So hey, the, uh, the passage that we have in front of us today, the one that I just read, um, it's, it's been referred to as uh, the most controversial passage in all of Scripture. Now you might be wondering why, um, but it has been referred to that way. The most controversial passage in all of Scripture. Uh, Martin Luther commented on this passage, um, and he said this. He said that it is definitely a wonderful text. It's a wonderful text, but a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other New Testament passage. And he said, uh, he said at the end of the day, I do not know for a certainty what Peter means in this text. Uh, he even, Luther even goes further to say that, uh, he says, I cannot understand this passage, I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who ever has explained it. So that's the great Martin Luther. And so as I'm reading that opening line in the commentary I'm using this week, I'm like, and I'm going to preach this text this week. The great Martin Luther who wrote scores of books couldn't explain this, and I get the express privilege of it explaining it. So... Um, you might want to buckle up your uh, seat belts and pray for me <laughs> as I preach. I'm not sure that I can do this much more justice than Luther did. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, when I, when I think about the way Luther kind of came at this text, my first thought, too, is like, you know, leave it to Luther um, to kind of be the bearer of bad news with, like, absolutely no resolution whatsoever and just kind of drop that and leave it there. Um, and so I, I'm studying throughout the week other, other authors and scholars and commentators, and uh, th there's a modern-day guy um, in, our, in our day and age today uh, who has calculated that there, there are nothing less, there's nothing less than a roughly 100, count them, think about it, 180 different exegetical or interpretive um, combinations in theory of what some of the main phrases in this passage actually mean. So... You think about that, you're going to sift through 180 different possibilities on some of the phrasing in this passage and then come out the other side with some kind of meaning that's actually helpful and meaningful um, to us. Um, what am I saying? What I'm saying 
is that scholars all the way from Luther until today um, have, have basically agreed that this passage um, would do nothing short than give us ulcers. Now, most of you are probably thinking, why? I, I don't know if I understand. Just think about it this way. Um, when you look at this text and you just take it at face value, some of the phrasing in it, what happens is you start to get all these questions. What does this mean? What does that mean? And at the end of the day, the answers to those questions have possibilities that, that go on for days and days, okay? And some of the possibilities, some of the answers that you can find as you're doing the study on this text, some of the answers are far more believable than others. And so, so, so what I'm saying on the front edge is that some of the conclusions that you could arrive at while trying to interpret this text are actually so unbiblical and so filled full of fantasy that it would actually leave your head spinning if I sat here and listed out all of the possibilities. Um, it's, it's nuts when you think about the different phrases. We're going to work through it um, one by one. Here's some of the questions, okay? Here's some of the questions. Who are the spirits that Jesus went and preached to? That's one question you got to wrestle with. Who, who are they? Um, and again, the, the possibilities of who they are, depending upon how you're reading it and how you interpret it, just go on forever. So who are, who are those spirits? Um, here's another question. Uh, what did Jesus actually preach or proclaim to said spirits? Okay. Um, here's another question. Where did Jesus go to preach to these spirits? The text is not super clear when you're looking at it. Why does Peter mention Noah? Uh, what does baptism have to do with Noah? How does Christ's resurrection relate to Noah's flood? Right? Uh, uh, what, 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 when you look at this phrase uh, towards the latter half of the text in verse 21, what is this? does this phrase mean? What is the, uh, the, the appeal to God for a good conscience? When you look at that phrase, an appeal to God for a good conscience, what does that actually mean? Um, and, and what does that phrase have to do with baptism and Noah's flood. So that's just, that's just introductory work when you start studying this text. Um, it's absolutely fascinating to me as I, as I read through it and studied it this week. Um, and so uh, my hope is that God would come and help to take all those questions and boil them down together and give us something that's actually meaningful and transformative, right? Again, tons of questions about this text that are very appropriate questions. And at the end of the day, we're, we're probably not going to get them all completely answered because we don't have enough time. Um, but I do think this. I do think that if we act like um, really good detectives as we look at the text, um, I don't know, you know, when I was a kid, I used to read um, Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. I think I read all of them. So I think you kind of have to put that kind of a thinking cap on when you're looking at this text. You need to be almost like a detective and actually try to mine the text for all of the meaning. But at the end of the day, here's what I think we're going to see. I think you'll see that really the thrust of the text is this. Jesus is the submissive son of God who is the ruling king, and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I think that's the main thrust of the text that Peter wants to get across to us. Let me say it again. Jesus, the submissive son of God, is the ruling king who is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now I want you to ask this question. Why is that important? Somebody ask that out loud. Hey, more than one of you did. You're not asleep. That's good. Why is that important? I want you to think about this. That kind of a truth, the fact that Jesus, the submissive son of God, is the ruling king who is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that truth is meant to be a massive encouragement to us. Anybody who is suffering on this earth, right? Like, I don't know what you're facing today, what you walked in with, but I don't think there's any other message that you and I need to hear other than this, that Christ reigns supreme, that Christ is victorious. Like, I don't know what's going on in your marriages. I don't know what's going on in your relationships and your friendships. I don't know what's going on at your job. I don't know what's going on with your bank account. I don't know what's going on with your addictions and those sin patterns in your life. 
I don't know what's going on for you emotionally, but I do know this. The answer to all of that that brings encouragement and transformation is this single truth. Jesus reigns victorious. So, there definitely are a bunch of difficult questions that we're going to work through on this text. Uh, we're definitely going to ask some of them. I'm going to do my best to kind of give you what I think the most faithful position is on some of those questions. But at the end of the day, when all of our questions about a text do not get answered, here's what we can trust in. We can trust in this truth that Jesus paid the price to set us free from the presence, the power, and the penalty of sin, and that he actually reigns supreme over all things. Now, with that thought in mind, we can begin with verse 1. Here's the cool thing. Thankfully, uh, thankfully, Peter starts out with a fairly easy-to-interpret statement at the beginning of our text, okay? First thing he says in verse 18, basically, is that Jesus was crucified, okay? He was killed, and he was resurrected. Pretty simple stuff. Here's how Peter says it. Look at it. Verse 18, he says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, when you read this verse, uh, the, the reality is there's really nothing super controversial about it, right? It's pretty straightforward. Nothing super controversial about what Peter says here, except, except the fact that Jesus would willingly, and I would say scandalously, give his life as the perfect Son of God for humans who have made themselves out to be God's enemies. Why? Why would he do that? Why would anybody give their life for their enemy? Like, I'm not inclined. I'm not inclined to lay my life down for my enemies. But Jesus was inclined to do so. And in fact, for the joy that was set before him, meaning he found great, deep joy in laying his life down for his enemies. Why would he do that? So that they can become God's adopted, blood-bought children. Right? That's why Jesus did what he did. You think about this truth. For me, when I think about this, I know my life. I know the sins that float through my head. I know the sin that comes out of my heart and, and into the behavior of my life. When I think about this fact that Jesus would willingly die as a perfect person for an imperfect person like me, it's deeply humbling, it's deeply encouraging. It's encouraging to me to know that Jesus would willingly be crucified on my behalf, right? Like that he would suffer for my, my sin-soaked war against my heavenly Father. That the Jesus' deepest desire was to glorify his own Father by, by, by ransoming me back from the power of Satan's sin and death. And at the same time, he would actually leave the tomb empty as a visible proof of his victory over my enemies. That's crazy. Satan, sin, and death do not get the last laugh. Why? Because Jesus was crucified, killed, and resurrected. Is that sinking in anywhere? Like, does that feel like old news to you, or is that deeply encouraging to you? You know what I mean? Like, the tomb is empty. That's proof that you and I walk in the same victory as believers in Christ Jesus, and that means that nothing that you and I face in this life has a hold over us. I don't have to live in frustration. I don't have to live in depression. I don't have to live in anger. I don't have to live divided. I don't have to live in all the ways that the world around me tells me to live because my Savior left the tomb empty. Therefore, I walk in the same victorious power. Wow. That's encouraging. Seriously, I, like my question at this point when I got into this text is like, well, what more needs to be said? Right? Wrap it up, close the book, close the computer, pray, get off the stage, do our thing, get some communion in. Peter's not done, though. <laughs> what more needs to be said to in, in encourage us in our suffering, in the hardship of this life? What more could be said to encourage those who are 
suffering the hardship of Satan's fury, right? Anybody, anybody felt the hardship of Satan's fury lately in the last year and a half or so, or at least observed it, if not intrinsically feeling it personally? Anybody else felt or, or observed the, the brokenness of this sin-infected world? Anybody else, anybody else notice that we're, we're living a life at this point that is doomed for certain human physical death? I mean, there was a death toll that we all watched daily for a while. It affected us, right? What more could be said besides this truth that Satan, sin, and death, they don't get the last laugh because Jesus was crucified, killed, and resurrected? Well, like I said, Peter does have more to say. And uh, really, this is where the text um, gets super interesting. Uh, so I hope that you've got your Bibles open. I hope that you've got your finger where it needs to be as we track our way through it. Because the next thing that Peter's going to do is he's going to mention the Old Testament hero, Noah. And what are we going to get out of this? I'm going to give you kind of right on the front edge. I think what, what, what Peter's basically saying is this. Noah, um, Jesus is a better Noah at the end of the day. Okay, I think that's kind of the main thrust of what Peter's getting after. He brings up Noah and he basically says, hey, Jesus is better than him. I mean, think about our concept of superheroes today, right? Anybody like superhero movies? Come on, people. There's got to be more than three of you. Okay, there's a few. Thank you. Superheroes. When you think about superheroes, at the end of the day, every hero that you could latch onto is simply a shadow of the one true hero that we have in Christ Jesus. One of the things I love to do is watch those superhero movies and pick out elements of the gospel. Like, see how that superhero is stronger than everybody else? See how there's a moment where it seems like the superhero loses? Now watch, watch as that superhero gets back up out of death, kind of, and then wins at the very end of the movie. It's a picture of the gospel all the way through. It's a picture of Jesus Christ himself in all of those stories. The greatest story ever told is the story about the greatest superhero who's ever lived, and that's Jesus, right? Every modern-day fictional superhero is a shadow, just a mere shadow of the one true hero that we have in Christ Jesus. Look how Peter says it. He describes Jesus in relation to Noah when he says this. Verse 18, he basically says Jesus was what? He was made alive in the Spirit, right? in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. What's he saying? I think he's simply saying that Jesus is a better Noah. But when you read this passage, it's kind of easy to miss that as the main point and get caught up in all these other things that are there. And, and don't hear me wrong, they're important, so we're going to deal with it. But don't lose focus on the fact that what I think Peter's saying is, Jesus is the best superhero who ever lived. If you want to look to somebody to give you stability in the midst of a, of a very shaky and uncertain world, don't look to Noah. Look to Jesus, because he's a better Noah. Again, questions do abound about some of the phrases uh, in these verses, right? Here's some of those questions. Who are the spirits that Jesus proclaimed to? What did Jesus proclaim to said spirits? Where did Jesus go to proclaim whatever he proclaimed to whatever spirits he proclaimed to, okay? Um, Again, at the end of the day, this is, this is where it gets really dicey. This is where you find the, the 180 different versions of meaning out there that you got to get your, your little flower sifter out and sift through, okay? So that you can kind of sift out the negative stuff and the bad stuff and the bad interpretations and grab a hold of something that seems faithful um, to the broad uh, story of the scriptures. Um, let's start with question one, okay? Who are the spirits that Jesus proclaimed to? I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I'm just going to simply say, I'm very persuaded, as I did my study, that the spirits that Jesus actually proclaimed to here, uh, they're either human or they're angelic, <coughs> or they're both. <clears throat> um, I, I'm probably more persuaded that they're angelic. Um, 
they're either human or angelic, or, or they're bulls, and, and they're, they had died during Noah's flood. Um, the reason I say that is because the context of what Peter's saying points to the context of Noah's flood, so it kind of allows for that. We know that humans died. We also know there was something to do with some kind of fallen angels, right? Um, I think it should also be noted here, if you do the study on this, you'll find that the word for spirits in this text, um, uh, when it's used throughout the New Testament, it's only ever always used for non-human spiritual beings. There's never a place in the Bible um, where it's used to, to, to interpret human spirits. So that's why I lean towards the non-human spiritual spirits. Um, so I do think the spirits that Jesus preached to could be the fallen angels that, that you might see referenced in Genesis 6 and 2 Peter 2 and, and Jude 6 as well. So you might be saying, why is this important? Why are we down in the weeds? This is gonna, we're going to wrap this up in a tiny bow. So stick with me. Second question, what is it that Jesus proclaimed? This is a hairy question too, okay? What is it that Jesus actually proclaimed to these spirits? When you do the word study on this, written in Greek, right? That's where the New Testament was written in. When you do the word study on this, Peter uses this word um, when he says proclaim. So you'll see that um, in this text. Um, when, he, when he uses that word proclaim, um, it's the Greek word that simply means this. It means to make an official announcement or a public declaration. So if you're a note taker, write that down. It's an official announcement or a public declaration, okay? So that's, that's the word that's used. Um, the word that is not used is the word that is commonly used throughout the New Testament that refers to an evangelistic proclamation of the gospel. So those who want to make this out like, oh, Jesus went down to hell and preached the gospel message to those who died, therefore they get saved and go to heaven, they're totally misreading the text. And, and, and furthermore, I mean, just logically speaking, you've got to use logic when you're, interpret, when you're interpreting stuff, right? Um, if that was logically true, then it's like, well, hey, why do I got to get saved here? Like, why do I got to go to church? Like, why can't I just go out and smoke dope, sleep around, do whatever I want? And then after I die, Jesus is going to come preach to me a nice, really little message. And I'm going to be like, hey, get me out of hell. I don't want to be here. Right? So just logically speaking, that kind of interpretation doesn't make sense. So you go with the meaning of the word. The meaning of the word is to make an official announcement, a public declaration. So my, my persuasion, what I'm persuaded to believe about this is that Jesus went and made an official announcement or a declaration of his victory. Think about this, at the cross and the empty tomb over those who had died during the flood as God's enemies. Okay? Jesus' proclamation to those evil spirits, probably most likely this massive, triumphant, victorious proclamation of judgment, uh, which would be in keeping with the most immediate context here, the triumphant and victorious theme of verse 22, right? We're going to get to that here in just a few minutes, where Jesus is seated on the throne in heaven. All things are in subjection under him. You might remember that word, subject. That's important as well. That's second question. Third question. Third, and this is the last question we're going to deal with on this, this section. Where in the ever-living heck did Jesus go? Right? Where did he go to proclaim what he proclaimed to those spirits? Some people think that he went to hell. Some people think he went to purgatory. There's, I mean, there's all sorts of other possibilities, too. Um, Peter says that, that Jesus made his declaration um, in our translation, the ESV translation in verse 19, it says he went and made his declaration to the spirits in prison. You see that, right? To the spirits in prison. What is that? Where, where is this prison at? Where did he go? Again, some scholars uh, believe that Jesus went to hell or that he went to purgatory to make this declaration. Um, here's the reality, though. The reality is that the word that is used here for prison doesn't appear to refer at all to hell uh, simply because this word, prison, is not used uh, anywhere in the New Testament to refer to hell. Um, so it doesn't appear like th that, that, that word would mean hell here. So you kind of got to rule that out. 
Uh, the other problem, too, when you start talking about purgatory is I can't find a word that actually talks about purgatory in the New Testament, so I kind of rule that out as well. Um, so when I think about this word prison, I'm trying to figure out what does it mean. And, and I think the broad, um, you might say the broad spectrum of scholars and authors on this, um, that they believe that this is a reference to God's sovereign and restraining control over all evil spirits. I mean, think about this, okay? Um, and I don't know if you ever caught this as, as you maybe tracked Christianity, but there is kind of one sector of theology that's kind of like everything's out of God's control. Like, we got to help God win, right? Like, God really needs you to help him do this work. It's kind of like, wow, that's whack. But God doesn't need me, okay? Maybe chose us, calls us, yes. And then there's this other spectrum of theology which says, hey, God is actually in charge. He's in control. When you, when you read the book of Job, what you see is not a God who lost all control and therefore Job is facing a crap storm of things. What you see is a God who is in absolute control from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. And so I think if you look at God that way, and I think that's, that's, I think that that is the, um, the broad theme in all of Scripture, all the way through the cross to the empty tomb, that God was sovereignly in control from before the foundations of the earth. And what you see here is you see a God who is in control over all evil, which then will beg the question, then why has he allowed bad things to happen? And that's a question I can't deal with today. I was out of time. But it's, a, it's an important question. And it's a hard question to wrestle with, too. At the end of the day, what I think is happening in this text is Jesus is showing up in the spiritual realm, right? After the crucifixion, he dies. And he says, hey, it is finished, right? And then he dies. And in those moments, I think all of the evil spiritual realm is going back crazy. I think they think they won. I think Satan and his minions are so deceived they think they won, and Jesus walks into that spiritual space, and he's like, yo, you lost, I win, sucks to be you. I think that's kind of the way it went. I mean, he might have said it in more of an old King James version. <laughs> but I think it went something like that. You know, it's, it's, again, it's that scene in the movie where you're just waiting, right? All evil seems to have cut loose, and it's doomed. That's what it's like in the movie that you're watching where the superhero is at, right? All the bad guys are like free to do whatever they want. It's what it appears to be. <coughs> and then somewhere <clears throat> out of the middle of nowhere, the superhero shows up. Superman drops out of the sky, hits the ground. The big cloud of dust goes poof, and he looks up, and the bad guys are like, oh, crap. That's the scene, I think. I really believe that's what's taking place here. Whether it was before the resurrection, after the resurrection, I'm pretty certain it was after the cross for sure. The rest of it I don't think matters. What I think matters is that Jesus showed up in the spiritual realm alive and well, and I believe that he proclaimed the victory over every evil spirit from the time of Noah until the end of time. Like there's, there's, a, there's a certain peculiar kind of encouragement in this when you think about this. You think about the things in your life that you face on a day-to-day -day basis. You think about the world that we're living in, the trajectory of where things are headed right now and what we're looking at, and you can just step back and you go, you know what? The tomb was empty. Jesus showed up and said, I win, you lose, and your days are numbered. I love that. Now again, in all of this, in all this can be really easy to miss the fact again, so come back up to the top again from, from digging into the weeds a bit, be really easy to miss the fact that Jesus really simply is a better Noah, okay? Um, don't miss the fact that, that God's patience in the days of Noah waited, think about this, roughly 75 years. So I don't know where you're at today in the political scene. I don't care which side of the aisle you're on, but think about God waiting 75 years to do what you want done in the White House. Just simply because his patience is going to wait for the people that are there to possibly turn or to continue in the destructive direction they're headed. 
Now, on one side, I can feel like, 75 years? I hope I'm not around that long. Right? Joe, you're close. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> 75 years, roughly, God waited um, during the building of the ark. Now, oftentimes, we, 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 when we read that story, we just think about Noah, right, being so faithful, getting laughed at by, by all the evil people in his time, right? Um, but he's just a faithful man, just building the way, building this boat. God's patience waited roughly 75 years during the building of that ark before bringing the cleansing judgment of the flood upon mankind, who, according to Genesis 6, were only bent towards evil. And don't forget this, too. Like, this is a point that I think is super important. When you think about uh, Noah and the ark and the flood, um, don't forget that the story of Noah is basically a story about one faithful man who is obediently rescuing a handful of people in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation Think about this with the exact same kind of wood building the boat that the cross of Christ was made out of. Now you could preach all sorts of sensational sermons all day long, and I've heard them. You could preach all sorts of sensational sermons all day long and miss that point and forget the fact that really what Noah's Ark and the flood points to is Jesus, who is a better superhero. Jesus is a better Noah because his faithful sacrifice saved far more than eight people. Saved far more than eight people. And the salvation that Jesus offers through the wood that he carries and gets nailed to is more than mere earthly salvation from drowning in a flood. Like it's an eternal salvation from the eternal judgment that's coming for those who disobey God until death. That's Jesus. Jesus is a better Noah. And the fun's not over. Move on to verse 21. Move on to verse 21. This is pretty whack and wild too. <coughs> it's almost like a Wild West shootout kind of, a, kind, of, kind of a text to be reading. It just moves from one quick thing to the next, right? First you're out in the main street taking out bad guys. Now you're in the side streets. Now you're in the back alley. <laughs> in this next portion of the text in verse 21, what I see happening here is Peter takes the resurrection of Jesus and he takes the baptism of believers along with Noah's flood and he ties them all together in this really neat and tidy little bow, okay? It's a neat and tidy little knot. What he's doing, basically, Peter is basically tying a knot in three very different, <coughs> very visually stimulating events in the lives of his listeners. Look at what he says, verse 21. He says, baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now in this short sentence, Peter, Peter ties this neat and tight little knot between the resurrection of Jesus, the baptism of believers, and the faithfulness of Noah during the flood. Um, but it's whack, okay? Because there's problematic phrases in the way that Peter writes this. Um, the first phrase is this phrase that says, now saves you. And it appears, when you read it, it appears as though he, that's in reference to baptism. That's, that's kind of the way when you read it at first glance, you're like, oh, baptism saves me. I better go get baptized. Boom, I'm saved. Right? Um, the, the, the next uh, really problematic phrase is, is that, that phrase that says, as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Once again, it appears as though it's a reference to baptism, as though getting baptized would actually clean your conscience somehow. And so it's like, oh, I better get baptized and clean my conscience. So, question. Does baptism save you? Somebody answer that question. No. 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 I, the, the, the interpretation of that phrasing um, led many different church groups to, to basically run around and baptize babies after death in fear that they were going to hell. Now, some of this was also used in church history um, to line the pockets of certain preachers um, and certain priests. And so uh, Luther, Luther stands up in the middle of that and, and kind of makes this massive argument that, no, uh, the only way you can be saved is in Christ and Christ alone. And you get the solas of the Reformation that come out of that. 
um, which basically say, hey, it's by grace, uh, through faith, in Christ, according to Scripture, for the glory of God alone. This is how salvation happens. Baptism, baptism doesn't save you. No ordinance saves you. Receiving of communion, baptism, does not save you. Now, I could spend all day long going through different passages with you, but, and I'd be happy to meet with you another time if you want to take a look at some. Um, but the reality, at the end of the day, Christ and Christ alone is what saves you. So here's the thing. I think at the end of the day, the key phrase in this verse, when you start tearing it apart in the original Greek, and you start looking at the way it's been interpreted into English, and you're trying to tie together the different nuances of vocabulary and all those crazy things that I know, like, somebody like Miss Karen, who's not here this morning, would love because she's an English teacher, I think, right? Did I get that wrong? Somebody correct me. Is it English? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh? Reading too. Yeah, reading too. So, um, so those of you who kind of geek out over that would probably love this. But when you get in down to the weeds, you start tearing all this apart. I think what you find is this. There is a key phrase in this verse, and I think the key phrase is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? I think that's the core phrase. So, <clears throat> so the way I look at this is you've got, you've got two things going on, right? Uh, you've got what saves me and, and what cleanses me. And I think what, the way that you read those two phrases, they have to like filter up or filter down uh, through this one singular phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, okay? The resurrection, we know, comes after the crucifixion. So both of those are intrinsically tied together always. Whenever somebody brings up the resurrection, you know that they're implicitly pointing to the cross because that came first. Um, so I think that that is the phrase by which to interpret these other two phrases, okay? Think about it this way. If Christ was never resurrected, if the tomb's not empty, then, 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 then neither baptism uh, nor the salvation of eight people during the flood, um, nor any kind of clean conscience would ever be possible anyways. None of it makes any sense if the resurrection didn't happen, right? Um, so I think... Peter's mention of baptism in this verse is simply his way of reminding his listeners that they have been saved just like those eight people. They're special. Remember Peter's audience, right? They're exiled. They've been booted out of the central place of influence and relationship. They're scattered across the known country. He's trying to encourage them. You've been chosen just like those eight people on that boat that were saved by that wood and that work of that one faithful man. I think, I really believe that's what Peter is trying to do with his people. All of that through the power of the resurrection. But what is this appeal to God, right? I've already kind of let the cat out of the bag how I read it. What is it? What is this appeal to God for a clean conscience? Is baptism the instrument by which our consciences are cleansed? I would say that it's a very faithful tradition which says yes and no. I think it's a very faithful tradition that says, hey, there, there is a cleansing that does happen, obviously, the moment you place your faith in Christ. And then the moment you get baptized, there's an obedience to God in that. And there's an obedience to God in church attendance. And there's an obedience to God in... A receiving communion, right? There's an obedience to God in all these things by which we are being cleansed. Sanctified is another word that kind of ties to this in the same Greek category and grouping, okay? So you're sanctified progressively on this earth, meaning you're made more holy and more holy the longer you practice your relationship with Jesus. But there's also a, a stance of sanctified, holy, completely in front of God in heaven, okay? So I kind of would take it in that cleansing aspect that, yeah, yeah, sure, there is a bit of connection between when I am baptized, yeah, there's some cleansing happening because I'm obeying God in what he's asked me to do. Um, so I, I would say, yes, yes, kind of. Um, here's the thing. When you come back to this statement, uh, the, the, this, this phrase, appeal to God for a clean conscience, this twisted me up uh, throughout the week. We even talked about this in men's group this week, too. It was a fascinating conversation between the guys this last Wednesday. Uh, we landed on this word appeal. Oh, what does that word appeal mean? Uh, there's only two different ways you can, you can kind of translate this. Um, it's either this kind of a begging of God, appealing to God, please save me, right? Or, or uh, a better word 
in the Greek for this uh, uh, would, would be the word pledged. Now, when you think about the idea of pledged and the idea of appeal, you get two kind of different visions, right? When you think of appeal, you think of your kid coming to you a thousand times over. Moms, it's Mother's Day. We're hoping this doesn't happen for you today. But you think of your kids coming, Mom, can I please have this? Mom, can I please do that, right? That's the kind of vision you get when you get that word appeal. I think appeal is the wrong word to use personally. So all the guys that have letters behind their names that I don't have who interpreted the ESV and made that word there, I think they're wrong. <laughs> That's a sound bite for you, okay? I think the best word, which is used in other translations, is the word pledged. <clears throat> when you think of pledge, what do you think? You think of a wedding, right? Think of a wedding. We're going to pledge our love to one another. I pledge to stay by your side. It's a promise. That, to me, seems far more faithful to the word that is actually used there in the original Greek. You want to know why? The word that is tr translated appeal here in my extra saved version of the Bible the, the ESV. <laughs> I'm joking. Come on, folks. Um, now, it, it's only used one time in the entire Bible. Anybody know where that's at? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You already knew that. <laughs> I already tried to do that. The rest of you are supposed to be thinking about that. Okay. It's only used one time. Yes, used right here. It's the only time this word is used in all of the New Testament. And I think it, it's used here to refer to this literal pledge. And I would almost put both means together, right? It's a pledge and a request together. It's been made by the believer. If you're a believer here, you, you've made a request to God, please save me. And then you've made a pledge alongside of that. I trust in you, right? That's the declaration of faith after a declaration of sin. You come to him, you say, God, I'm a sinner, I'm broken. I trust that you're saving me and you're changing me. I think it's that kind of a pledge, that kind of a request at the same time, made by a believer to God in faith for salvation as you and I turn and trust in the work of Christ at the cross and the empty tomb. So I think the word appeal here, I think it simply refers to a commitment, and that commitment is to a request that has been made by you and I that is based on the declaration and the promise of God in the resurrection. So I, I, that's a mouthful of meaning that you might think about. I think at the end of the day, it's based on the resurrection. That's why I say it all filters through. So the resurrection of Jesus is literally the third strand of the knot that Peter's tying together that gives both baptism and Noah's flood any kind of lasting meaning. Without the resurrection, Noah's flood is stupid. Seriously. Without the resurrection, baptism is stupid too. It's because of the resurrection that both of those have any kind of meaning and any kind of transformative effect in our lives. This is why I say that Jesus' resurrection corresponds to baptism and Noah's flood. Now, all that culminates in the final point of our text. Last verse. Here's where I think the main theme, after you've worked your way through this, again, being really good detectives, right? Asking questions, thinking our way through it. You come down to this last verse, and I think this is where it all kind of blows up, and you're like, bam, that's it. That's what it is. That's what it's about. So Luther was wrong. I don't know if he was wrong. <laughs> I also kind of wonder if that little quote that I started out with at the beginning might have been taken out of context. <laughs> I didn't have time to do the research, so... If that's what Luther said, I, I do. I, I would say, yeah, Luther was probably wrong on this. There is a way to understand this text, and I think there is a way to explain it. Here's how Peter says it. I think he says Jesus rules victoriously over all things. I think that's the main theme of the text. Jesus rules victoriously over all things, right? What does he say? Verse 22, he basically says, hey, Jesus is the only one, okay? He's the only one who has gone into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. Now, again, I said this earlier. The key word in this closing statement is the word subject, okay? This is the same word that Peter used in chapter 2, verse 13, chapter 2, verse 18, chapter 3, verse 1. And what's he referencing? He's referencing our responsibility to be subject, to submit to evil human government. We hated hearing that that day, didn't we? Anybody want to agree with me? I hated preaching it. No, I, I enjoyed preaching it. But I, that's not a principle that 
fills your church full of people or gets your tithe box filled either. Okay? So I, but the Bible says this. We're to submit to evil human governments. We're to submit to unjust employers. Didn't like preaching that either. And wives are supposed to submit to unbelieving husbands. Again, don't got time to go back and undo all those. So if you're new with us anywhere, person or in person or online, you just need to go back and listen, okay, before you start tearing in. Um, here's the broad scope. For nearly two entire chapters, Peter has called his listeners to submit. Submit to ungodly authorities, just as Christ did at the cross. But the final outcome, according to Peter, when you look at this, is that Jesus reigns supreme with all others in submission at him, under him, right? He will return, clothes drenched in blood, lightning bolts out of the eyes, sword come out of his mouth, tattoo on his leg, or a painting. Depends on how you want to try to interpret that. If you're uncomfortable with tattoos, you say it was a painting, okay? <laughs> but I mean, it's a whack scene when he comes back on that horse. He's the warring king, and everything is in subjection under him. He comes back with a, an iron scepter. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. That's the final outcome that Peter has in mind. And the resurrection and ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, that's what gives all of us a certain kind of hope that our own victory has been secured. This is where I started out. That regardless of the way that you answer all the questions in this text, what you do arrive at is this. I got this going on in my life. This sucks. This is on tilt. The world's stinky, right? But Christ is victorious. He reigns supreme. And if I've trusted in him, then I am an heir to that. I'm in him and he's in me and his victory is mine. I'm going to run out of that tomb just like he did and I can't wait for that day. To you and I as believers, we can take heart, we can be encouraged that we too will someday stand in victory over our enemies. Satan, sin, and death. Those are our major enemies. That'll happen once and for all at some point, just like our Savior. Seriously. I think that's the encouragement of this text. If the tomb is empty and the cross paid the price, then Jesus is definitely victorious over all things. So in conclusion, I want to point out a couple more things real fast and be done before we head into communion and worship. Um, I think it's important that when you look at the broad context of um, 1 Peter's letter, uh, you notice that Peter has mentioned Jesus actually three times since the beginning of the letter. In, in chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, what, what we saw was that the cost of our salvation, what's the cost of our salvation? Anybody know? What's the cost of our salvation? It, it's, the, it's the cross, right? That's the cost of our salvation. The cross. Jesus' death at the cross. That cost of our salvation, it's meant to motivate us to what? Personal holiness, according to verses 18 through 19 of chapter 1. If you look at chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, then you see that following in Jesus' footsteps means what? If you're going to be a Christian and say, I'm a Christian, then what that means for you is you need to submit and suffer. That, that's, what, that's what the context of that, that section of text looks like. You can't play with it and make it mean anything else. You can ignore it, which Christians are famous for doing, myself included. But it's there. Third, what we've just seen in verses 18 through 22 of chapter 3 is that we will taste victory through Christ's submission, suffering, and death. Why? Because the last chapter of Christ's work is not completely done. The last chapter of Christ's work is his resurrection, his ascension, which are done. But what's not done is his promised return. He will return victorious over all with everything in subjection under him. Now, again, I don't know what you walked in here struggling with. I, I don't know what kind of guilt or shame the voice of Satan has maybe been speaking over you this week. I don't know what kind of sin you've been tempted with. I don't know what kind of sin you ultimately gave into this week. I don't know how often you laid in your bed or, or sat in your living room chair 
pondering the days of your life, maybe even specifically the days of your life right now in the world that we're living in, as death taunted you? And I may not have answered all the questions um, about this super highly controversial text that Luther claims you can't understand and can't explain. Um, But I do know this. This text is really about the great reversal that has taken place between Christ's submission at the cross and then his victory in the empty tomb with his ascension to the right hand of the Father. What I know about this text and what I think is important for us to just keep as the main thing is that the main thrust of this text is that the faithful will get through the waters of this life in one piece. I've waited for that statement this whole sermon. You will get through the waters of this life in one piece. If you've trusted in Christ, you'll get through. Just like the eight who survived God's judgment back then in the flood, so too every person who has trusted in the crucified, risen, and returning Christ will be left standing on the last day. Why? Because our Savior, Christ Jesus, has been victorious over Satan, sin, and death. Amen? Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, I ask that you would come now and minister to us in these closing moments, that you would help us to meet with you and commune with you and find our encouragement and strength in you. Pray, God, that you would paint the picture of you as our victorious king. Reformers had it this way, that you are Christ the victor. I pray that you would paint, draw, color, tattoo that on our memories. Bring us to that place where we sit in the shadow of a bloody cross, look through the doorway of an empty tomb, and be encouraged in the hope of your promised return. As we consume a meal that resembles and reminds us of your broken body and your torn flesh. Trust you to do this work in Jesus' name. Everybody said. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.